Welcome to episode 30 of The Professor and the Hack. We made 30 PVO. We've got wine here, but it's not open for the listeners, but they should know that. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and we're going to look at the year in review. We're going to look at the year ahead because there's a 2020 shaping us a pretty bloody interesting year, I can tell you. We'll do that a little later. But, you know, it's pretty clear who the winners and the losers are as we look back on 2019. Um, <laughs> who have you got in mind uh, as a loser? Uh, Anyone? Can you think of any, I don't know, Victorians maybe or mm. federal so Labor Shorten, leaders? who's still there, of course. We forget he's still in the federal parliament and no doubt nursing whatever hopes that he might have. But you, Bill Shorten and all those who predicted a Bill Shorten victory. Hugh, there's, there's no way Scott Morrison can win the next election. No. I mean, I will wear it as a badge of shame. Happily, you've been reminded of this so many times that you can you can quote your. Uh... That was the first episode, and yeah. I sat in this same room with you, where you feel like no one's listening. First time I've ever done a podcast, and it was in the first two minutes of the bloody podcast. You blew and, your reputation and, out of the water. And what? Well, don't say that. Um, and, and We're still doing the podcast. What was so frustrating about it, I now know how politicians feel. I think I've whinged. Have I whinged you on air about this or just privately? I'll whinge a I, little more. I know how politicians feel now, not that I've shown them any more mercy for being taken out of context, but I went back and listened to it. You know, poor old Montgomery had me, you know, badgering him. Which bloody episode did I say that in? I wanted to go back and hear the whole thing. It was the first two minutes of our first episode. And I said, Scott Morrison can't win, can he? Surely I will happily wear it as a badge of shame if he does. And then that's where everyone cuts out, including the Prime Minister when he likes to replay it. That's where they cut out. Because my next line was, because if he does win, the comeback will be so extraordinary. As a journalist, it'll be fascinating to cover it. The story will be amazing. It'll be worth watching. Nobody remembers that. I just sound like this arrogant twat who says that there's no way he can come back and I'm happy to wear it as a badge of shame. They cut me off. They take me out of context, Hugh. Who does that? Commentator screams I was taken out of context. (laughs) Even Media Watch took me out of context. After the election result, they played it and then they replayed it. They didn't replay it as many times as the PM did at the midwinter ball, but they replayed it. And they took me out of context. The watchdog of us took me out of context. We will wade out of the studio through the sea of tears. (laughs) Anyway, look, you know, good on Scott Morrison. You know, there's nothing like someone winning an election. You know, like it it was so obvious at a couple of different points. Well, I I don't. You know, we're going to review all our all our moments, but the but I do remember when we sat down on the evening of the of the election coverage and you were going through seat by seat and you were saying, I can see uh, seats that are relatively easy for the coalition to hold Mm. and and I'm not seeing easy ones for Labor to pick up. And but uh, I still so predicted. Could, I still predicted, still predicted Labor because yeah. yeah, that's yeah. It was really. I, I remember that vividly because I predicted that night that Labor would win and they'd get you know a handful of seat majority, not much more than that. But that was based on just this reality. And I think a lot of us. I mean, you know, I was hardly Robinson Crusoe on thinking Labor would win. People, people stopped thinking about momentum and and the possibility of a shift at the end because literally every single poll from every single news agency from the entire time Scott Morrison was leader and prime minister had him not even once 50-50 but always behind. Yes, it got closer, but he was always behind. But then what you're referring to, I remember that. We were there. There were a few of us and we were trying to tally up the seats and I couldn't get Labor to 76 for a majority but what I could do was then have a further 12 to 15 that they were in the hunt for, I thought. And so I just looked at it and said, oh, I'll say they'll get 80 seats, a majority of four, 
because they're bound to get four of these 15 or 20 seats that I've got listed that that are up for grabs, you know, because look at the polls and look at the reality of how long this has gone on. As it turns out, uh, there was a momentum shift. If the election had been held the weekend before or the weekend before that, I think Labor scrapes over. But the PM was coming uh, and he was coming hard and in the end he got there. I think I think I said on the night that I thought Labor would surprise on the downside, mm. uh, but I did think that when I thought they might get into minority government to get there, but I, I felt no enthusiasm for it. And I was really interested by looking at Cowper, uh, that seat in New South Wales. We've talked about this before, the, mm. um, the poorest uh, seat outside Lingiari in Northern Territory, the, one of the oldest, full of pensioners. And, um, and Scott Morrison was up there all the time. And I thought, wow, my gut feeling from this is that franking credits is running among people who are going to not benefit uh, yep. from you're not going to suffer if Labor if, yeah. if Labor does it, but and yet but they're, spook, they're spooked by it, now, and, and that was a big. And I thought that that I'm sure that's running, and that's a lot of voters. Uh, you know, the, the the median age for voters in Australia is now over fifty. So there are yeah. half of the voters are over 50. You know, that, that's a conversation for another time, but that's an interesting point, the ageing of the population and what that does to voting cohorts and the major parties. And, and you know, youth voters tend to be more activist, but they're fewer by numerical comparison to, to the ageing of the population. Let me violate a confidence. That's why the quiet Australians, the quiet Australians. Is, where, is where Scott Morrison is, because yeah. in a sense he's, he's right. You know, the, the loud noise that you see on social media and that you, you might see at a climate rally uh, is uh, is a real thing. But uh, there is an enormous number of people, half the, half the voting population is over 50, and broadly speaking, they have different issues. Let me violate a confidence. Oh, please. Um, no, no better spot to do it because don't, I, I, I don't, learned... Don't I, do it on my account. Hugh, I learned from episode one that, you know, what you say here doesn't get picked up. No. Nah. Uh, You're safe with me. <laughs> <laughs> but no one will mind me violating this confidence because it's Christopher Pine. Uh, and, you know, he does stuff for us on Network 10 now. He's a regular on the project. Uh, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, even though he'll probably deny it. The night of the election, we are up there on the panel. He was, of course, sitting next to me. And, you know, we are all doing our predictions and all of us were basically saying we think Labor will win. I'm pretty sure, pretty much sure everybody said Labor would win. It was just disagreements of the size of the margin. Oh, I don't know. Trent Zimmerman publicly. Oh, oh you, sorry, sorry, you, sorry. Trent Zimmerman. Yeah, yeah Trent, 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 Trent Zimmerman couldn't either. Pine was the other one. Yeah. I was sitting next to Pine because we had Trent and we had, we had Christopher. And Christopher was, of course, retiring. Uh, great loss to everyone, I think. You know, he was so much fun in the parliament. But anyway... He goes on air on the back of everybody saying, uh, you know, Labor to win. And then, and, and the exit polls were showing a Labor victory at that point as well. He, he then said, I'm predicting a one, possibly two seat majority for the coalition. And I sort of looked at him like he was slightly starking, stark raving mad. Anyway, we go to an ad break, and this is the violation of the confidence. I lean over to him and I say, You don't really think, do you, that you guys can get a majority, and he bursts out laughing as only Christopher Pine can. He says, oh, God, of course not. We're no chance. He goes, but of course I can't say that, can I? You know I'm telling the truth here because you can hear him saying it in his accent. Anyway, hours pass. The coalition does win. He doesn't just take the win. He starts berating me on air, and he starts mocking me for being wrong and says, well, as I said, 
you know, it would I predicted a one or two seat majority, but you know, here it is. I was right, Peter. You were the one saying that Labor would win. And I, I if you went back and replayed it, you could probably see the look on my face. I'm looking at him just thinking, how the hell can you keep a straight face? So I'm outing him now as part of our year in review that that happened. And Christopher, you know, sue me blind if you think that uh, that I'm not telling the truth on this one. PVO <laughs> outs Christopher Pine and is apparently surprised that a politician will say something privately <laughs> and something else publicly. Um, oh, it's good to see such innocence, old chap. Um <laughs> I mean, it has been an amazing year, and we, we can we can go over the entrails of the of the election again. But there's probably not much to it. But if there's one thing that strikes me, is that elections in Australia are um, are made in the middle, and uh, mm. Scott Morrison. It was a close run thing. Lots of timing went for him. There are other dodgy elements. There was the you know the the ads that came from the. Palmer and so on and the death tax scare that was out there and all the rest of it. But in a sense, that's all part of the dirty game that we've seen. We've had Medi-Scare in the past. You win the elections in the middle and the one who reads the middle best has got the best chance of getting there. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And what some people who are focusing on social media or even some of the commentary out of Canberra think is the middle isn't necessarily the middle. That's the other lesson in this. The middle like a lot of people watching Scott Morrison would argue that he was not playing to the middle probably on, on some of his policy scripts, but actually that middle is mainstream Australia. The middle is not necessarily the policy script middle between the two parties. The middle is mainstream Australia. And and I think he managed to identify with them much more effectively, obviously, than Shorten did. But this was a, an election won off a fear campaign. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not aggrandise this too much. Let's also not feel too sorry for Labor, by the way, because uh, Bill Shorten got as close as he did in 2016 by running a disingenuous fear campaign around Medi-Scare. So you live by the sword, you die by the sword. There was a, an often at times disingenuous campaign as a scare campaign against franking credits and against, they even, you know, it was even the raising of a of a possible inheritance tax or death duties, which was never part of Labor's policy. So you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Morrison may well find the same thing when we talk about what happens in the years ahead stylistically. But uh, what I think was the big shift as we look back at the year, it was only late in the year, it was August when uh, when Scott Morrison came in the year before, but then throughout, you know, 2019, okay, fine, we get to the halfway mark where he wins the election or just before the halfway mark, he was up until then seen as, and I don't mean this too pejoratively, but a bit of a joke, really. He was the temporary prime minister, right? The substitute teacher, as Tom Gleeson called it. Exactly. So the substitute teacher, it's, it was fascinating for me in the second half of 2019, having won the election, how he ceased to be that, quite obviously. So the authority that he developed, even if you don't like him, and even if you don't think he's that he answers questions as I don't think he does, or if you don't think that his policies are necessarily great, or if you think he sits on the fence on a lot of policy scripts as I think he does, his authority is what grew, his stature. Uh, he was the temporary prime minister uh, who was only there before a defeated an election. And 2019 saw the transformation of Scott Morrison into an authoritative PM, like him or loathe him, very similar to Howard. Howard was always seen as a bit of a sort of temporary liberal leader uh, not having been Prime Minister before winning an election. And then he built that authority off the back of his victory and then, as it turned out, victories, whereas he was seen as a bit of a joke before that uh, different in a different frame, but he was seen differently. So for me, 2019 in domestic Australian politics was the 
quite obviously the rise and rise of Scott Morrison, like or dislike him. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, by the way, you can thank Christopher Pine to a certain degree for getting there because Pine uh, left the Turnbull camp in the middle of those dark days of August uh, to try and do some numbers to prop up Morrison to keep Dutton out, and that worked mm. well enough. So, you know, Pine, I suppose, has a hand in, in yeah, where all if, that went. we saw those WhatsApp messages, didn't we? If, if Pine had had let the moderates stick with Julie Bishop, Julie Bishop never would have gotten over the top of Dutton. She would have lost to Dutton. Uh, and, and Dutton would almost certainly have lost the election because oh, I think he was... That, that I'm happy to wear as a badge of shame if, if anyone thinks the opposite. I, I actually quite like Peter Dutton at a personal level. I think he's, you know, he's much more personable uh, in close quarters than he gets as a rap more publicly. But uh, his own side acknowledged that, that he would have been a disaster for them had he won. Look, having said that, though, you know what? You can never say never in this game because the version of the narrow victory for Peter Dutton, which we all assume would have led to a catastrophe for them, is what people thought would happen when it went the other way. And Tony Abbott got the victory back in 2009 over both Joe Hockey and Malcolm Turnbull. And as it turns out, he became electorally for a short time at least their saviour. Yeah. So you speak about the authority of Scott Morrison and how yeah. he's like Howard. And and one of the interesting things I think about coalition politics is that uh, there is that business about the left and the right wing of the of the of the liberal party of the coalition if you like but particularly the liberal party those who succeed are the ones who can manage to get both those wings flapping dutton was too far just a right wing flapper uh turnbull was too much a left wing flapper and we again in the context of the liberal mm. party um morrison is the closest to having both wings flapping since howard <laughs> and and he's I mean, Howard knew more what he was ideologically, but Morrison, somewhat infamously in years gone by, used to attend both the left and the right factional dinners of the Liberal Party. Uh, he was mocked for that at the time, but now uh, that would look like, you know, a bit of a masterstroke Absolutely. because he's managed to keep himself on the in a little bit with yeah. each side. Yeah, and I remember speaking to a senior Liberal at one stage saying the thing about John Howard was that he understood the factions within the party, but he could go and speak to one group who may not at that moment have had him as their fashion prince. Mm. But he'd go in there and speak to them. And when he left, people would think, oh, he's one of us. And then he'd go into the other group, the conservatives or the liberals side within the liberal party, the moderates and the liberals, and, and they would go, oh, that's okay. He, he's really one of us. And he did have that chameleon quality within the party, which is essential to longevity. Yep. And, uh, and maybe Morrison will have that. It remains to be seen if he's a reformer. We haven't seen much of that. Um, or a, uh, you know, whether he'll grow into the job as Morrison did, but as we as Howard did, you mean? Yeah, as, yeah. as Howard did. But as as we as we look to the year in review, you have to say that this has been the year of Scott Morrison, and and you know, and good on him. How good is Australia? How good is Australia? Uh, let's have a look at how good Australia might be looking forward and the world when we forecast. <laughs> what that's something I'm very good at. Hugh. Oh, I, our listeners will be absolutely glued. They will not leave for this. Never make predictions. What I predict about is going to happen. I predict will come true. <laughs> Stick around. We'll be back in a moment. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. So welcome back. You're in uh, part two of episode 30. Thanks for sticking with us of The Professor and the Hack. And we've let's have a look at ahead to uh, 2020. And for me, 2020 is going to be uh, all about Donald Trump. 100%. Up for election, 
Uh, does he win? <laughs> does he win? Well, let, make record, let me time code this. Okay. Well, well, when it does come to predictions, this, this is something that I've <laughs> done. I'm very cautious about predictions. I do love the old Yogi Berra line, never make predictions, especially about the future, which I think is one of the great, there's the great a, lines. There's a thought. But anyway, um, go on. But, uh, <laughs> Why didn't you tell me this on day one? Well, you know, I'm always interested by people. I'm always surprised by them being bold. I remember standing in New York City. Uh, the on the eve of the 2016 election, a live spot, and I had to go there with Walid Ali, mm. and he was he was. You say and, that like it's a burden. No, no, it was fantastic, man. <laughs> but uh, but we're up there freezing cold, uh, and Walid, in the way of he was doing a pre-record for the project, and um, and he got up ahead of me, and I respect and like Walid an enormous amount, um, and he got up, and he said, "Oh, look, you know." All this talk about there being any doubt about this, let's, let's kind of, you know, forget it. Uh, tomorrow we'll wake up to um, the first woman pro- uh, president of the United States. And I was sitting there listening going, <laughs> really? Um, I, I admired his boldness. But also one of the things that life has taught me is that conservative votes are almost always underestimated. Mm. I cannot, I've seen that, we've all seen that again and again and again compared with the polls. And I cannot remember a time off the top of my head when I've seen a Labour vote being unpredicted, underpredicted, except possibly 1993, the true well, yeah. believer victory. I was about to say, I, I think that's right, absolutely right. Conservative votes tend to be the one that's under uh, predicted, And I think one of the reasons for that is that you know, there's rightly or wrongly this sort of attitude that people have, some people have, uh, that they perhaps aren't as frank with pollsters about right-wing parties more so than left-wing. It's almost like it's not the done thing around the dinner party or something like that. But the, the other problem someone like me has, and Waleed would fall into the same category because we're of a similar age, we generationally grew up watching the Hawke-Keating period carve up uh, the conservative side of politics electorally. There was the 1993 win. 1990 was almost the same. I mean, it wasn't to the same extent, but Peacock was ahead in the polls through the 1990 election and then Hawke scraped over the line with less than 50% of the two-party vote. Um, John Howard actually looked like he was doing okay despite the Joe for PM campaign at different moments coming into 87. And then, of course, he ended up losing relatively convincingly. But Labor looked dominant, you know, for 13 years federally, right at that formative year period where people like Waleed and myself were were thinking about major party politics in this country because he was Australian politics was his thing as an academic before moving into the media as well. And that's clouded our judgment about the calibre of Labor or its capacity to do well in elections because before that as well as after that, that hasn't been the case. But I've got this sort of artificial impression that the Labor machine runs silent, runs strong, and that they're electorally very powerful. Uh, and we've long. moved away from Trump here, but yeah. I think that there is there there is obviously inaccuracy in that because that was a snapshot in time. And you move to Donald Trump, you know, I, I'm going to... Well, just before you do move so, on to Donald Trump, I, I, one thing about that is it's not even so much making a judgment about the Labor Party, but making a judgment about what Australia is and who Australians are. Hmm. And my gut feeling is, is that Australians are... I, I, I don't use the word naturally conservative. I think Australians are naturally cautious and that that makes them that it's that innate caution that lies at the centre of uh, Australians' views of politics is the thing which I think tends to be misunderstood. I think it's a great point because it's the caution to change governments, so incumbents benefit from that often, but particularly conservative incumbents because caution to change a government can be superseded by concerns that a government isn't cautious enough. 
And obviously, the more left of centre parties are likely to be less cautious because they're going to be more activist and more progressive. There's going to be more change more often than not, whereas a conservative government has two advantages, I think, on that Australian caution. One, don't change horses midstream. They're the incumbents. But two, they're not doing anything too radical nine times out of ten, so therefore stick with them because that's cautious. Most Australians, I think, broadly speaking, think the country is a good place to be and they're suspicious of people who pull levers too hard to change the country. That, that's where I think the centre is. But, um, you know, we can go on about that, but the Trump thing is mm. we need to touch on. So you are about to say, you're about to give a deathless prediction here. <laughs> well, uh, just, just, just uh, look, I, I think Donald Trump, almost predicting this in the hope that it doesn't come true, I, I, I think Donald Trump is the favourite to win. Uh, and I think that's not just because he's the incumbent, uh, not just because the American economy is humming along okay, notwithstanding some pressures, uh, but also because he can win with far fewer votes than the Democrats need to win. Uh, Now, the Democrats are going to have to continue to go through their primary process, which will of itself be somewhat debilitating. Who they pick will be important to any prediction. So vital. it's far too early to make a proper prediction here. But the reason I think Trump goes in as favourite is simply because he needs far fewer votes because he gets them in the areas that matter under the Electoral College so, system. So huge votes turn up for the Democrats in California and in, in New York. But who cares? Yeah. Because they've got those states. Because anyway. they get those states. That's the other weird thing about the American mm. system is that if you can, and this is in, in fact what turned it in the election that saw George W. Bush uh, brought in, is that by a handful of votes in Florida, uh, the whole state of Florida with Flips. all its Electoral College yeah. votes head in his direction. And and so, yeah, that is the difficulty. But also the other thing about him was something that I was always reminded by, something Joe Hockey told me, that he'd never seen anyone better than Trump at being able to frame an opponent. Um, so Crooked Hillary or Sleepy Joe, yep. this sort of stuff. We've talked about it before. But um, I wouldn't want to compete. I'd hate to go into a ring against Donald Trump with all his capacity for um, that, you know his sheer ruthlessness. I mean, he 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 went at Greta Thunberg, mm. a sixteen-year-old girl, on Twitter about how she needs to do something. She needs some anger management therapy or anger management classes it was or something. And this is from the president of the United States against a uh, an ardent sixteen-year-old girl, and he gets away with it. It doesn't. I well, mean- he seems to, doesn't he? Well, again, maybe the voting systems comes into this a little bit. Would he get away with it a lot less in a compulsory voting system that we've yeah, talked the, about? Yeah, the middle previously. of what does the middle of the road think? Um, but we're also in an era, as we've said about Boris Johnson, that the notion of the of the colourful character who doesn't bore us, who can kind of skate the winds of turmoil and controversy and emerge, you know, almost like a cartoon figure, you know, with a, with a sort of a big <laughs> kind of laugh in the middle of it, still there, grinning. Uh, that's that has enormous currency in the current weird world that we're in. I'm still making predictions, so I'm predicting Donald Trump uh, and, you know, Prime Minister, if you're listening, I think that you've got the next federal election in the bag, so take comfort in that. But the that won't be in 2020, of course. We'll get to state uh, federal politics in a moment, no doubt, and no election at the federal level, even if there's an election at the state level. But, Hugh, I, 
you talk about your caution around making predictions. Uh, you've got more in common with one Jared Henderson than you realise, uh, perhaps. How good to know. He, because <laughs> when you said that, it was really interesting because when you said that, it reminded me, uh, he, he once warded me, maybe he should have the same conversation with Waleed after his prediction around Hillary, but he once said to me, you shouldn't make predictions very similar to yourself, you know, because, you know, you never know what's going to happen and you get held to account for them. I think that is probably the far more rational approach. My my view is that you know I kind of I don't mind being wrong. You know, like mm. don't make a prediction if you've got a problem with being wrong. Sure, <laughs> that's for damn sure. Um, but you know, it's it's a bit of cephology. You know, I I I I, I think that there's a little bit more humour in in it, and and we'll see what happens. Yeah. There. there's snapshots in time, but I do think that Donald Trump, uh, to get back on point with him, I think. I think he now is the favourite, but hell, you know, as we say, who becomes the Democrat candidate, um, how the campaign travels, and then, of course, how the economy domestically and internationally affects the US will all have their own impacts. Don't forget, George Bush Sr. was a lock to get re-elected as President of the United States because of uh, because of the war in Iraq, the first war, and then sure enough, what happened? Took his eyes off the economy. Exactly. Yeah. The, the other one I look at is Reagan, actually, because I'm old enough to remember Reagan. And he was considered a buffoon. Um, you know, he was, a, he was an actor famous mm, not for- Not even a very good one. For, for one of his, not even a very good one. You know, his- He was a B-grade actor. Yeah. His, one of his most famous roles was opposite a chimp. Um, <laughs> he, he did a better job of it, actually. But anyway, so he got in uh, after all that turmoil of the Carter years and the Iran, Iranian hostage stuff and everything. And I remember from that movie Argo how, how badly- um, Poor old Jimmy Carter went on the whole saga. In yeah, Iran. look, it was, it was terrible. He was being he was being killed on that, and then they went and did a rescue effort, and the rescue effort crashed and burned, and everything I about have sources Carter beyond went wrong. Yeah. Argo, by the way, I've, 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 I've read up on it as well. Just for but those look, listening, but so Reagan sort of swings in there, Sonny's sort of a guy, and everyone thinks, well, you know, what do you know? And in his first midterm elections, he was pasted. He went backwards enormously, hmm. and everyone thought, well, you know, he's gone. And in fact, he got back up again in '84, and he and and he would have. He that was against looked, Dukakis, wasn't it? Uh, Dukakis was uh, George no, he was W. Bush, he yeah. Was so uh, it was against Mondale. That's right. That's but right. Uh, who only the only state he t- took was his own, I think, was Michigan. But um, but the thing the thing about him was is that. Reagan was a change agent and in the time enormously radical and also mm. released all these taxes, you know, this oh, theory yeah. of... Him uh, and Thatcher yeah, and, and it was and a real cut thing. all that sort of stuff. So the rich got richer and the donors came. And I see similarities in the new time for uh, for Trump. And I can see that in 20, 30 years' time, there is a prospect, if he gets re-elected, that they wash away everything weird about Trump. And, and the conservatives will say that he was like an ideal president. <laughs> just as I just as I view Reagan, that that's a you know that's my fearless prediction for the future. But let's come domestically a little bit. No federal election in twenty twenty, or certainly none that we're expecting. Um, always possible though. Always possible. It's the year. <laughs> it's a critical year though, isn't it, for Scott Morrison to consolidate and decide if he is going to be a prime minister who does things mm. and what will he do, and equally the challenges there for uh, Albanese. Oh look, absolutely. You know, Scott Morrison will be. Defined by how the budget goes, uh, he'll be defined by some policy scripts. Whether 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 he's seen to be doing things, but not doing too much, you know. So he won't want to be idle, but he will want to be conservative from a stability perspective. He'll look to reinforce this idea that good government rather than leadership instability is now 
the raison d'etre of the coalition. He'll also try and make out like he's halfway through his first term, as opposed to this being a government that's halfway through its third term. That's important. Labor will go the other way on that, of course. They'll continue to try to unpick Scott Morrison is arrogant. Uh, They're trying to say that he's loose with the truth, that he doesn't answer questions, and then try to say this is a stale government that's halfway through its third term. What's it actually achieved? Will he be a reformer? I mean, what does he say in response to Albanese? What have you achieved, Scott Morrison? What what will he be able to point to as he has to look forward to a re-election, other than simply holding the reins? Oh, he'll say we've returned the budget to surplus. And that's it? Oh, I think so. Like, I, I, look, there'll be little things, you know, a little bit of stuff with the unions, a little bit of stuff with the boats, repealing Medivac, they will argue they've resecured the borders, fairly or unfairly, that's what they'll say. But I think at the centrepiece of all of that will be the economy, even if the economy is spluttering a little bit. I don't think they can lose on this because I think the argument will be Labor got in when they had no debt from the Howard Costello years. They blew the budget, even though both sides did, with equal measures of increased debt, but put that to one side. He will then say, we have finally returned it to surplus and unpicked all the damage Labor did. Don't risk going back to Labor because now we start the journey of paying back debt. It's a pretty solid argument. You'd, You'd want to be on that side of the argument. And if the economy is good, it works even better. If the economy is bad, as I suspect it may well be, well, the it's message becomes even stronger. Definitely don't risk Labor now. Look at the state of the economy. It's funny because the election victory for Scott Morrison, some believe, I think there's truth in this, it started to turn with the budget, uh, the Frydenberg budget. Yeah, I agree with that. Which is a, very, which is a good budget. It was a solid budget, didn't scare anybody, had some good things in there, uh, was well written, so it had some clarity about it. How much is Frydenberg important to the success of the government? Oh, look, I think he's he's important, but he's as important for the stability as deputy leader and treasurer that he provides because he's nowhere near Morrison as a rival. So he's a little bit like, in that sense, what Costello was to Howard for a long time before he became somewhat unstable because of his own leadership ambitions. But I think this is a Morrison government. You know, I mean, McCormick is nowhere as National Party leader. Josh Frydenberg is somewhere because the economy is there, but he's nowhere in terms of you know, dominance. This is... Dutton's back in his corner? Yeah, Dutton. Dutton Dutton's in his box as well, though, so he's not going to challenge him. Christian Porter's competent and has got a lot of responsibilities between Leader of the House, Industrial Relations and AG, but again, he's no no rival. So it's, a, it's, it's all about Scott Morrison. We should say this, though, quickly before we run out of time. I know you were going to get to it. The Queensland election at a state level that is due, I'm not an expert on Queensland politics. Prediction coming? I'm not. I, I won't risk that. But I will say this. It would seem that the Labor-Palaszczuk government has its problems. I'm interested in it from a federal perspective. I'm not making a prediction that the Labor government loses, but let's assume that they do based on where the polls are at and where the momentum seems to be. If the LMP get into power in Queensland in 2020, a good 12 to 18 months before a federal election is due with Queensland having so many Labor, sorry, so many coalition seats that they need to retain when they've only got a 77-seat thin majority. If that new LNP government flops, if they make unpopular first-term decisions, a la the Newman government, there is a risk there for Scott Morrison that he loses Queensland off the back of a disgruntled attitude towards or at a least new a couple state of seats. government. Yeah, and mm. even if that's all it is, then he needs to be looking elsewhere. He will be adroit to that, make no mistake. Scott Morrison is nothing if not a campaigner, an ex-state director. He will note Albo's spending a lot of time in North Queensland. He's trying to get those coal mining communities at Al back. 
and a new LNP government presents a new challenge. A new LNP government at the state level in Queensland presents a new challenge for the federal coalition government. To manage all eyes on Queensland as ever. Uh, have a great 2020, Peter. You it's too. Been good you're not going to talk to me in 2020? Or? No, of You sound I'm like you're saying goodbye. No, I feel like no, Waleed. No. <laughs> <laughs> there are no goodbyes in this game, mate. There's only a see you later. So uh, thanks for listening and staying with us during the course of this uh, of, of this year. If you've stuck with us through the podcast, uh, thanks. We'll, we'll try to sharpen up our act in the new year. We're getting a little loose here. Have a great Christmas. Have a great New Year. We'll we'll see you through 2020, we hope. This is The Professor and the Hack. See you later. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 